So just for, uh, you know, to bring us back to that one question, uh, is mathematics, can you do mathematics without actually having a language associated with it, like English, German, French? Yeah, so uh, it's, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I can't say that I, I thought too incredibly deeply about it until now. Uh, but it seems like, you know, especially a lot of the, uh, the students that uh, come over from, say, Asia, right, where it's not a Latin-based language, per se. Mm. Uh, I find that, and I don't know if this is just how culturally this has evolved, or if there is some more of a um, sort of uh, semantic viewpoint of this. But it seems like a lot of them think and write about physics and mathematics um, using English, yeah. right? And so like, I guess like even a lot of the buzzwords, a lot of the terminology, uh, I don't know if they have a lot of, you know, sort of different words for it more than that they actually use the English words for that. So that, that's quite interesting because I could very much see how it's influenced by hey, the objective is for you to go to school in the United States, and therefore you must be literate in this very specific way so you can succeed there. Because uh -huh. I, I know of uh, some people who have studied, for example, in Iran. And okay. he, my, my one really good friend, he, he's, a, he's, like a, he's done his postdoc, right? And uh, he was just sure. sharing me his uh, textbook from Iran and how it's written in completely a different language. The whole thing. Oh, yeah? And I believe uh, there are some schools in Germany that, uh, if, again, I'm speaking a little bit out of my own expertise, but there's some schools in Germany that will do the same where the book is completely in German. And uh, it, it kind of gets me wondering because uh, I, there are certain parts of the world that have a really high reputation in terms of like mathematical literacy. I think Russia, Germany, like other parts of Eastern Europe. And it's a combination of things. One of those is that they just take it more seriously. And uh, when, like there's this Russian way of teaching math that's super famous and one of the things that i read was you don't treat children as if they were lesser like you don't you just you actually kind of put them into the deep end with abstraction whereas okay. here we're still dealing with like i think we start dealing with algebra in, in almost the end of middle school yeah or, and uh, beginning of high school whereas they're just you know, you're five, I don't know, five, six years old. I don't know the ages in schools, but at a very young age, you're introduced to these, this concept of abstraction. And that gives you a lot of power moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So, so I think that um, one of the parts of education that I, I, I don't know, I think it should be changed. I, I didn't like it too much. Or I, I guess I didn't really have a conscious opinion of it as it was progressing through my own education. Mm -hmm. But looking back, like even from high school, from college and so on and so forth, like even from that young age, it seems like there's a lot of emphasis that's put on, you know, knowing your multiplication tables. Um, I mean, I remember in my own educational experience, uh, like even I think second, third grade, we do like these games where it was like rote memorization of just the multiplication tables. Hmm. And like, don't get me wrong, that, that's important. You need to have a good foundation, know, uh, you know exactly, you know, abstraction of the mind, how you go, go about this. But it seems like a lot of it is just memorization. And there's a, a large difference between memorizing, you know, a certain table, a certain concept, uh, so on and so forth, 
and actually understanding it and moving on to more, you know, branching out to abstract ideas and um, sort of building off of just the, the concept of it rather than the memorization of it. I see. Yeah. So you, you would have had it way earlier on, right? Yeah, I, I think that that would be a, I, and don't get me wrong, you know, not everyone's a, a STEM major, uh, you know, going to use those type of abstractions. Yeah. But for those who do want to use that, I think that would have been a, a sort of a, a more helpful route to go down. I, I, I tend to certainly agree. I think even if you're not a STEM major, at that point, uh-huh. you don't know. Like, you, like you're saying, you're not consciously aware that that's what's happening. You're just like, okay, this is school and I'm going to try to do super well at it, right? Because that's all I know. So it is a responsibility of uh, the, te- like not even the teachers, but like the policymakers at that point to determine what is and isn't quality, edu- like a quality education starting at this point. And I think the problem is that, and I could be speaking out of nowhere again, but there's, there is, there isn't an emphasis on that level of abstraction until way later. I don't know the reason, but it could be lack of like lack of literacy on their part. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, and um, also there's this, I think specifically math and abstraction, they have a very bad, very bad reputation in society. I, I yeah. know so many people who not only do they dislike math, but they like hate it. Right. They just say, oh, my God, like, uh, what's your major? I, I study math and physics. Oh, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> That's like a very common response, right? Yeah. So there, there's I think there's a little bit of restructuring, not a little bit. There's quite a bit of restructuring to be done because mathematical thinking, is, it's unbelievably powerful. It, it's why we have the computers that we're able to have this conversation on. It's, it's the reason why we're yeah. like where we we've escaped the industrial age <laughs> well almost <laughs> right almost uh yeah I, i'd be interesting to see in places where mathematical uh thinking and, and abstract thinking is, is held in you know this high regard in education it, mm. it'd be interesting to see you know how do, how does the general culture view this mathematical thinking and this way that they've developed this educational process yeah. I mean, like, is it different in Russia, right? Do you know, if you go to Russia and say, yeah, as you're saying, Mo, I'm a mathematician, I'm a physicist, I'm a STEM major. You know, do they have the same reaction as saying, oh, wow, that's hard. Or, wow, I'm sorry for you. Or mm-hmm. is it like, you know, more culturally like, oh, well, you know, tell me more about that. That sounds interesting. I learned about this when I was in high school or, you know, middle school, you know, something like that. Is there a different viewpoint on it in those cultures? So I, I would tend to believe from my limited experience that it is because they, mm-hmm. here, here's, here's my take on it. Okay. If, if we think about historically, what was the sort of pinnacle of intellectualism? It was philosophy, right? Sure. It was um, maybe Galileo, right? He's be, be before, before being a scientist, he is a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And he, he was doing these and conducting these, these experiments out of interest as a, as a consequence of his like philosophical study and in society that is held to very high regard. And as you evolve, I believe most, like most people that we even still study, right. It's like Laplace, Lagrange, uh, Cauchy. uh, I don't know about Euler. They were all still studying language and philosophy as long along with mathematics. And I believe 
there was there was this like really nice pairing between like philosophy, math, and physics because these are like the descendants that because the people studying them were held in high regard, it was still thought of as this really wonderful thing to pursue. And uh, I believe in in those cultures, it's it's this probably the same way where when you're growing up, those those are the people that you're looking up to. It's just like wow, this great philosopher Galileo. I, I aspire to be like that. This great uh, mathematician and physicist, Lagrange, I really aim to be like that. And it, 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 there's just a, it, it has to do with role models. And I think yeah. after you kind of evolve from, from that era, you, you start developing financiers, engineers. Um, I, 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 I'm kind of limiting myself to, to like the popularity in, within STEM. Uh, yeah. What's like another popular field that a lot of people from <clears throat> school go do? And by school, I mean college. You mean that's, um, that's outside of STEM? Yeah, outside of STEM. I actually can't think of any besides like maybe business. Uh, business, I mean, nursing is a pretty big one. Hmm. Um, yeah, medicine. I mean, I, yeah. Um, I'm so narrowly. I, I guess like also language translators. Yeah. Right. Right, but I, I just think that there are many more options now to where you don't even have to remotely be like that level of literacy with math and uh, it's like scientific, maybe not even scientific reasoning, but specifically math to, I could still have a role model and get away without having this thing. And uh, maybe I could even make way more money. And then it becomes a, a whole game of who is being the most productive. Engineers, computer scientists are being super productive. We'll give them... Uh, x times the salary uh so I, I had no more incentive anymore i have no role models and i have no incentives and uh and and, and i believe policymakers see this being the demand so the market demands engineers and then this kind of um sort of this kind of thinking is really the emphasis when when we're coming up through through like grade school or, or even, even grade school i'd say yeah, I think, um, I mean, so it, it's interesting dissecting the, the phrase given by, I think it was by Newton, right? Saying that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Hmm. And so, I, you know, I, I think at the time, at least this is the interpretation I got, that he's saying that, well, you know, as great as his accomplishments in science were, right? Developing all his laws, developing calculus, Right, things that uh, arguably are some, you know, you wouldn't have physics or even a good portion of math without these contributions. Uh, that even even though as big as his contributions were, he's saying that well, really, I I dwelled upon, I got the work from, you know, people who came before me, mm. who carried the torch furthest uh, until I was able to pick it up for them. Right. And it, so it, it, it's saying that you know, his accomplishments are, are great, but really the accomplishments of those that came before him are greater. Mm -hmm. And but I think there's now a, sort of this double meaning that uh, you, that you're you're hinting at, Mo, uh, saying that, well. Also, these people, you can look up to them. Right. These are people that you can draw motivation from. Right. And saying that, well, the only reason I made my accomplishments is because they were the people that held me, held me up to do this. Uh, and so I guess, 
you know, uh, as you're saying, sort of to tie it back into this poetic way that Newton put it, is that uh, we're, we, we've cut off the legs of our giants. Oh, man. Uh, they're, they're, not, um, you know, they're, they're not quite as big as, as they are now. They're not giving as much motivation as um, perhaps we would like to have. Yeah, there are a lot of giants that live in obscurity. I think uh, Lagrange is an example. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, it's very fascinating. Uh, I believe it was Galileo's notebooks that Newton had access to, all of his experimental data that he was able to use and sort of start crafting these theories. So it's super fascinating because that probably saved him a lifetime's worth of experiments to conduct before he could even start an analyzing right? Sure. It puts you, it puts you at a very great starting point. And that's why I'm very excited about the time that we live in, right? We have, not only do we have this colossal corpus of just theory and information and people who genuinely understand it, but we also have the means, which is technology, to easily access a very particular subset of that, whatever that subset, like the most uh, interesting subset. So I think that combination puts you at a, a very unique time in history. It, it's something that perhaps your advisor didn't even have access to when he was in grad school. Right? Sure. Maybe the internet, I don't know, I'm probably speaking out of nowhere, but it, I feel like most uh, professors currently, probably at the, the esteem of your professor, were in grad school when the internet was just, just bumping, right? Is that, is that accurate? Uh, well, so, so my advisor personally is actually a pretty young guy. Oh, okay. So I, I think he might have had it a little bit before that. But, but I know I see what you're saying, though. A lot of these uh, perhaps older professors, uh, that is certainly the case. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's just it's kind of wonderful because you are that you're at. The, you're at the right place at the right time, exactly when all of these these technologies are not in complete maturity, but in enough maturity to where you can very effectively start searching very effectively. And, and uh, I guess we'll, we'll get to this when we start talking about your actual research, but I'm curious to see if you've ever, I will be curious to see if you've actually leveraged that in, in a different way. So how about, how about we, we actually get into what you do now? So if you had to if you'd give me a tagline, what, 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 would you, what, what would you say is the overarching uh, subject that you work in? And then what is the tagline for the project that you're working on? Right. So sort of, uh, okay. So there's, um, I'd say, there's at least like two different taglines that I can oh, okay. talk about. Cool. Uh, so one is that I'm looking at a very specific material, right? It is this uh, topological semi-metal. Okay. Uh, so, so that's, that's one tagline. Uh, the other tagline that uh, I'm, I'm working in parallel with is uh, I'm looking at a, a response. Okay. You're looking at a what? A response. Okay. So in particular, I'm saying in my specific instance, you shine light on something, what happens? Okay. Okay. What is the response that comes out of shining light onto that material? Got it. So yeah, it's these two different taglines that I can, I can talk about. And you're currently, you, your PhD is in uh, condensed matter. So uh, my PhD is in physics. Oh, he's my bad. Yeah, physics. Uh, right, but but my my subject, my specific subject that I'm focusing on is condensed matter. Yeah. Okay, and then I guess what what is it? What is it? What is condensed matter? What does this mean? Yeah, so I, I guess it's kind of um, a a misnomer in some ways. Okay. 
Uh, you, you start to see um, the, the name uh, quantum materials, which I think is a little bit more of a better description, uh, become popular these days. Uh, but for historical purposes, it's, it's known as uh, condensed matter. But uh, essentially, all this is is saying, right, so physics is usually talked about in this reductionist point of view, saying, you know how this large thing works, right? Say you throw historically way back in the day, you throw a ball, you want to know the forces that are surrounding that, how, um, you know, how uh, air resistance plays into that and stuff like this. And then as you move on through physics, you start getting like this high energy regime. You're saying, mm -hmm. you know how the, these large macroscopic objects, you have a pretty well, uh, you have a pretty good understanding how they work. And so what you want to do is say, well, what does a smaller thing do? Or what does the more extreme thing do? Say if you're a, um, right, an astronomer or an astrophysicist, you're saying, what does the big thing do? Right? And so it's sort of this, you're taking it more to the extremes of certain, uh, certain spots in physics. Yeah. Well, for condensed matter, for quantum materials, we sort of take a step back from that in some ways. And we say, okay, we know how these smaller things work, right? Atoms and electrons. Uh, and we know that these, these high energy physicists are probing the, right? Trying to get smaller and smaller. We're saying, okay, let's step back from that and say, what interesting things happen when you have a lot of these small things? Hmm. So it's like the opposite where you're building up. Right. It's the opposite. You're building up, you're, you're right. You're, you're kind of going backwards in that sense. Uh, but it turns out that you get some, uh, right. So the, the buzzword here is the emergent property. Mm -hmm. uh, you get some properties of the system as a whole that you would not normally have if you just look at one piece of it. And, and that this, so that is the, the quantum materials. That is the sort of origin of the quantum materials that you're, you're just studying. Yes. So yeah, we're saying that we know that there's a lot of interesting quantum mechanical aspects that are happening for each individual part. Mm. What happens when they all act together? What interesting macroscopic things happen? Okay. So if, if I were to, to start, you, you said you have two taglines. Yeah. The one that's more intuitive to me because it had way less buzzwords is, is, is seeing the response of, of shining light onto a material. So, yeah. so what, are you, what are you doing there? Yeah, so the, the particular research project that I have is I'm saying, okay, let's shine light on something. And ordinarily, you could say, okay, well, what happens? Well, there's a bunch of electrons that are trapped inside this material. Uh, what will happen is that you will endow some energy to these electrons and you'll end up exciting them. Okay. Right? You'll, you'll, you'll excite them to a different energy level. Uh, what is not so well known currently it's somewhat surprisingly but uh, there's been a little bit of work but it large largely it's not that known is one possible thing that can happen from there is when the electron de-excites back to its original level uh it can vibrate the material right it can cause oscillations in the underlying um in the underlying lattice of the material and from there, you could say, well, okay, you, you've you, essentially what you've done is taken light and you turned it into vibrations. What, what are the things that can happen from there? Well, another thing is that it can, again, excite electrons. And then those electrons can then give out light. 
So it's sort of this, right, this uh, somewhat multifaceted process of saying you start with light, you turn it into vibrations, and then you turn those vibrations back into light. Mm -hmm. And then, right, from an experimental point of view, you can then detect what light is being emitted from this material. Yeah. Okay, and so that, that's sort of the, the process of the, um, the response that, uh, that I'm looking at. And so, what, so what is unknown? Like what, what is currently unknown with this system? You don't know what maybe frequencies or wavelengths of light that are emitted or, and why, or what, like what the actual physical path is? Yeah, so yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so ordinarily, and this is also what say my previous research in undergrad was uh, going at, is that you can talk about, you shine light on something and it will excite electrons. And so you can get an electrical current from that. Okay. Okay. And maybe that's the end of the story. You're not interested in anything else. Uh, another possibility is you could say you shine electrons or you shine light. It will excite electrons. And then maybe they will de-excite and also emit light. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that, that's another process that you, that you can say. So the, the thing that is not so well known at this moment is what is the role that vibrations actually have in the response function? I see. Yeah. So a lot of these models, um, particularly, you know, this is sort of like the, the, right, the regime of saying, what is the zeroth order effect, hmm. right? And then what is the first order effect and the second order effect and, and so forth, right. right? The first order effect would be saying, well, I'm only interested in saying I shine light, it excites electrons, and then those electrons emit light. The next order of approximation is to say, I shine light, they excite electrons, and then vibrations might affect them from there. Mm. And that is currently what is not so well known is how those vibrations will affect the, the response that comes out of it. Right, right, right. So now you're, you're doing like a much more fine-grained probing of the actual em like emitted light, given this assumption that things are vibrating. Yes. So... In particular, right, it, you know, say, say you're an experimentalist yeah. and you're interested in probing what, what are the properties of this material? And so you could shine light and you might get some surprising peaks, hmm. right? So say at a certain frequency of light, suddenly it blows up. Yep. And so, right, there's some peaks that we're not able to explain currently. And so the hope is that, uh, once you start to include these higher order effects, stuff like uh, these vibrations, which by the way, to throw some terminology at you, Mo, uh, they're called phonons. Okay, the vibrations uh, are called phonons. Yeah, the vibrations are called phonons. Uh, and so the idea is that these, these phonons adding the, right, adding the secondary effect might help to explain where these unknown peaks are coming from. I see, so you can more perfectly model the response, right? Yes, that's, that's the hope. So I guess, what, what, is your, what is your current approach then? Are you just, um, you, have, you have a large corpus of like a large body of data with these unknown peaks and what you're trying to do is come up with a theoretical model to, to explain that away or, or like wh where do you fit in? Yeah, no, so that, that's exactly it. Is, um, so, so I mean, yeah, so that, that is the, 
sort of the, the toy description, the ideal description of, of what would be going on here. Yeah, it's too perfect. Uh, yeah, it's too perfect, right? In, in reality, there's always this disconnect between theory and experiment. Uh, but, right, there, there shouldn't be, uh, currently there's no reason to assume that these vibrations wouldn't play some role in what's going on. Hmm. Uh, at this point, it's a matter of finding what material would this best be expressed in. Got it. Uh, it turns out that, uh, so, so there is, right, so, so sort of the, the material that would be most ideal for this is to say that, well, we want a material where the lattice itself is, is strongly interacting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, basically we want a material that is very strongly bonded. The, the atoms are very strongly bonded in a certain direction. And, you know, they might be strongly bonded in maybe other of uh, the three-dimensional directions, but we're not, we're not very interested in that so much. We're more interested in saying we want a material where it's very strongly bonded uh, so that these vibrations will be very violent. Okay. And so yeah. once you have this, this strong effect that's entering your system, then you're more likely to say that, well, how it interacts with the, electro the excited electrons in here uh, there's more likely chance that that will be expressed in the response function. Whereas if you had a weakly coupled lattice, I don't, I'm using weird terms here, but if you have a lattice That's where they're right. all shaking in unison, you wouldn't be able to determine that effect. Right. And so in all honesty, right, uh, that's the, a pretty good approximation to most materials. The one where they're really strongly coupled and... Uh, the one where they're weakly coupled. Oh, I see. I see. So you're looking for like a, a, a physical system that models your toy is, is like a really good version of your toy system. Yes. Got it. So you can even like look at a, like ch a little chunk of your real material and cut around it maybe. And the part that surrounds yes. it. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Is strongly coupled. Right, okay. Got it. So you're saying uh, yes. these vibrations because the material is strongly coupled will violently shake the whole thing. And therefore you can really test if it is the vibrations that are causing the, 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 the this uh, peak emission, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So the, the thing that comes to mind is uh, for some reason, what I was thinking of when you said uh, uh, vibrations, part of that was because you're weakly coupled, right? Like you're able to really balance and hit into the your neighbors and have this really violent effect so when you have this thing moving in unison right how how does that how do you, how do you uh, is like in my mind there's no there's no more room for that there's no more room for things violently hitting into each other it, there there's more of a let's let the whole thing kind of sway okay so you bring up a good point uh but it turns out that, so actually this, this thing that you're talking about, more of the in unison swaying. Yeah. That's more what I'm interested in. Okay, so, so why? Okay. So, so, okay, so I, I guess I should say that there are, there's uh, right, different uh, paradigms of vibrations that we can talk about. Yep. The one that, that I'm more interested in here is saying that, okay, so, you know, us physicists like to, uh, approximate everything as a harmonic oscillator. Ah, oh, I see. 
And what we're saying is that, well, this, this collection of lattice, right? Say, say take one dimensional direction in this lattice. Mm -hmm. I want this to be strongly coupled enough that when they sway, this swaying is uh, a, a strong effect of what's going on. Mm -hmm. They should sway in unison, right? Mm -hmm. These should all be harmonic oscillators that, right, one affects the other one. And we should have some sort of um, uh, some uniform mode of what's going on. Mm. Uh, in fact, if you don't have that uniform mode, well, give it enough time, it'll settle down into where it is swaying in a uniform way. Okay. So, but, but so th the point is though, that when it does sway, it should be a, uh, a fairly drastic swaying in how it does it. But it should be in uniform. Yeah, you're right about that. So that drastic sway is enough to, this is the, this is the question, is that drastic sway enough to uh, give you the response that you want? Uh, yes, yes. So it is, it, it'll give yes. you these peak emissions. Yes. Very interesting. And I guess what is your, uh, your approach to modeling, modeling this, right? You, you, you mentioned harmonic oscillator. Uh, yeah, would take me take me to the process of how you begin to, to model something like that. Okay, yes. In very, as much detail as you want. Very good, very good. So, um, so, so sort of, the, sort of the, the model that we're, we're talking about is we treat the electronic system, right? The system of the electrons in this material as being separate than the lattice model. Okay. And so, uh, so one of the ways that we, we can uh, get away with doing this is again, we, we're using this, this level of approximation. We're saying, okay, to some extent, we're going to assume that these two are separate systems. And mm -hmm. this, is, this is a relatively good approximation. By separate, you mean like able to move separately? Or, or yeah, able to move independently of each other. So As can... being the electrons don't really know of the, the movement of the, these, uh, of, of the atoms in your material. Very fascinating. So yeah. like the, they're, the, they're just being sloshed, uh, sloshed around, maybe. Yes, that, that's a, a perfect description. That is a perfect description. They're being sloshed around. Uh, so, so, okay. So that's, that is the ordinary way that we do this. Mm -hmm. So we have these two separate systems, but as I said, we want them to interact. Okay. So, so even though we're treating them separately, we do have uh, a term in our model in which we let these two systems couple to each other. Okay. And, uh, so we, we introduce right, some, some strength, st some coupling term uh, that will allow us to do this. And, uh, and so what, what ends up happening is that to various levels of approximation, I can say that, well, okay, I know that, right, this is going to couple and they're going to interact in some, some uh, god-awful way. But uh, really, I might be more interested in saying that, well, I know that there are certain processes that will be very unlikely to happen. Okay. So one of those processes is I could say that, well, I have an electron that maybe gets excited when I shine light on it. And then maybe it de-excites and it causes it to vibrate. 
And then that vibration might excite another electron. But instead of emitting light, maybe it will vibrate again. And then uh, excite an electron, and then vibrate, and then excite an electron, and then vibrate. OK, but that's a, a, you know, a very long down the road process that we're talking about. Right? Each, of these, each of these processes has some probability of happening. Right. Okay, but the, the more abstraction you get, the more you say that, well, maybe it will right, go through this long, complicated process before it finally emits light. Right? These, these are not very likely to happen. And so to some approximation, we can say that, well, we, we can ignore a lot of, a lot of these um, uh, right, higher order terms and what's going on. Right. And so, you know, I mean, you know, say, say maybe down the road, we might say, well, maybe we are interested in these higher order processes. But uh, what we would say to a good order of approximation, we can say, okay, ignore a lot of this uh, chain upon chain upon chain of things and just focus on one, one specific chain. Yes. Uh, and so, so it, it's actually really, really interesting because there is this, um, right? So there's this notion of, uh, say, quantum field theory. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the high energy physicists use this this high energy uh, this quantum field theory. Just for, for for quick reference. Yeah. Can you please uh, give me a visual, like spatial visual understanding of quantum field theory? Like just just uh, what like and how you would explain it very quickly, almost intuitively. Sure. So I'd say that quantum field theory is the intersection of uh, relativity and quantum mechanics. Okay. Uh, so that's, okay. There is an additional component, I'll say, which one can say is the intersection between um, what we would refer to as many body physics and quantum mechanics. And many body physics is just saying that, well, I, I have a, a lot of a certain thing. Uh -huh. uh, and I just have to be very careful with how I treat some of this stuff. Um, in particular, say if you have fermions, right? We know we have like the Pauli exclusion principle. And so we have to be a little bit careful with how these, these many, right, these many uh, quantum states are interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. We don't want to do something that's illegal at any point. Yeah. Um, and so I'd say that that's sort of the, the two cent description of how you can think of uh, quantum field theory. Okay. So keep, keep track of a lot of details. Make sure that you don't violate laws, intersection of, of uh, quantum mechanics and, and gravity. Yeah. Cool. Got it. So, okay. Back to what you were saying. You can use quantum field theory. Yeah, so you can use quantum field theory because one of the things that it's uh, pretty useful for is uh, perturbations, mm. right? So you might say that, well, I'm, I'm interested in maybe, uh, right? Say, say I, I include this interaction of vibrations. And uh, as I said, maybe we're not interested in, you know, vibration upon vibration upon vibration, maybe just one vibration. And we're saying that, well, this might produce, uh, we, we want to know what is the first order effect of that. That is to say, what is just the first order perturbation of what's going on? Hmm. And 
so what these high energy what these high energy physicists use this for is they say okay I might shine maybe light maybe hit it with electrons maybe you know I have some system that's coming into this I let it interact and I'm not really interested in maybe the specifics of the interaction but I'm more worried about what is the end product once everything is emitted at the end of the day what am I able to detect from that Right. And so in essence, that's, that's sort of what's going on here is I'm saying I, I have some system that's coming in, in this case, light. I am letting it go in, do its thing. Maybe it does some complicated uh, process, right? It excites electrons and maybe vibrates and then it excites electrons. And this quantum field theory will let us say, well, what is the, the perturbation that I can identify from that? And then from there, right, it emits the, the light that I'm interested in. Yeah. And it, it essentially is this scattering process. And uh, this quantum field theory lets me say, well, what, what is the leading order to the scattering that I only have to care about? And so that, that is the intersection. That is the model that uh, I'm using is this, um, this quantum field theory. So if I, if I were to dissect that a bit, uh, what is the, so s s you say scattering. Yeah. So what, what exactly are you referring to in that part? So there's light, hits your system, something happens. There's emission of some certain wavelength. You were saying this new tool allows you to sort of ignore the minutia of what's happening inside, but really understand the scattering. Like, what, is, is that, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so the, the buzzword uh, scattering here, uh, all I'm referring to is saying that you, you hit, all right, let me be very general about this, yeah. and say you hit something with something, and you get something out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that, that's all, you, you know, you're saying that, uh, right, you, you send something in, and Right, it undergoes some, right, it affects it in some way. And all you care about is what happens when it comes out. Got it. Yeah, that's all it means. But so if you were, I guess, is there information lost, right? So you say something hits something else. In this case, we're hitting light and it, it interacts with your system. And then you're interested in what comes out. You're able to model it effectively. Yeah. Is there information lost as to about the, what, like, what the actual mechanism on the inside is? Because it seems ah. like that's what you were worried about in the first place. Ah, so yes, this is this is a good point. So, uh, I mean, inherently there will be information lost. Uh, however, right, it's, it's sort of this game of saying how much information can you can you let be lost without having to worry about it, mm. and. So, okay, so, so indeed, right, the, the information that I'm, I'm letting being lost in this case is I'm saying that, well, I might not be worried about these, these higher order of things that are occurring. Mm -hmm. And right, so I, I have to justify this. I can't just, uh, right, take this for granted and say, well, yeah, just assume this, right? I have to justify and say that, well, each of these processes, it gives just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and eventually I'm saying that, well, how this is affecting the scattering is going to be so minuscule mm. that maybe I won't even be able to detect it by experiment. 
Wow. So you're able to qu qualify and quantify at the same time. You're, you're able to say, okay, here's the order of this in input and here's the order of the effect on the output. And if it, if it diminishes, we're, we're, we're golden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very fascinating. Something there's like a very interesting meta point that comes here. So I'm, I'm currently not an expert in, in something that requires some, this, this level of modeling. Sure. Do you ever find yourself sort of questioning the machinery that you're using and by machinery i mean abstract mathematical machinery right in my mind to do this kind of analysis to even make the kind of argument that we just talked about you have to have such a such a grasp of the tools that you're using like a very fundamental grasp to be able to even fully leverage them right you have to know what their limitations are you have to know that they apply you have to know how to manipulate them you have to be you kind of have to um prevent yourself from overusing them, right? So how, take, me to the, take, take me through that process, not just from the point of view of someone who's, who's become the expert, but from the point of view of, of, of someone who's, you know, who I was in, like you were in one of my first physics classes together. Like, <laughs> yeah, kind of take me through that. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned this because quantum field theory, especially its beginnings, was very controversial. Mm, why? Um, there, there were physicists that uh, thought it was basically just uh, mathematical uh, uh, mumbo jumbo. Yeah, yeah, mathematical mumbo jumbo. Uh, it, but it, it, so really, when when people started taking this seriously, is when the experimental data was able to show that the predictions that were coming out of quantum field theory were sound. Hmm. That's when people were like, okay, there might be more to this than, than meets the eye. Right. And so, so one of the, yeah, okay. So one of the reasons why quantum field theory itself is, is controversial is that what you're doing is saying that, okay, I, I go through maybe one calculation and I end up getting infinity. I end up getting an answer that makes no sense whatsoever. Physically or mathematically? Mathematically, mathematically. Okay. And then, but what, what these, these quantum field theorists do is they say, okay, let me add some corrections to this. These corrections are physically motivated, uh, but more so they are set there to cancel out a bunch of infinities. Mm. And so really what you're saying is that if I naively do the calculation, I get infinity and I say, well, I don't want an infinity here. I introduce some correction factors to this. And those correction factors are meant to cancel out those infinities. Or sometimes I get zeros when I shouldn't, I want to cancel out those zeros. Yeah. And I, again, although they are physically motivated, right? The, the, the notion that people get that these are, that makes it controversial is that you're canceling out infinities. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I'll be honest. I, I think a lot of, a lot of people, myself included, when we first go through and learn these, these field theory approaches is that you do, you are uncomfortable with these. Right. Right. Cause it, in some ways it's not like this, this very definite thing where, you know, you, you, you Right. It's built upon saying that, well, this is where, where quantum mechanics ends. This is what quantum mechanics can't tell us. 
And this is why we need to introduce this framework. Hmm. And it seems just very, very, uh, very patchworky saying that, well, I'm introducing this concept because I need it to work. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, you know, myself included, I was very uncomfortable with, with learning this at first. Uh, but there is enough physical motivation for why it has to be so and enough experimental data backing this that you, you sort of have to accept it that, well, you know, maybe this isn't the most, um, you know, the, the most mathematically comfortable way to do something, but it still seems to physically uh, give predictions that are accurate. Mm. And so it is rather remarkable um, that this thing ever works out at all. So uh, it does make you wonder. So, I mean, from a philosophical standpoint, it does make you wonder and say, is there something more underlying this? Uh, it seems like there, you know, there should be maybe some more connective pieces for why it should work out the way it does. But yeah. um, I, don't, I don't think people have... Um, you know, have that concrete of a, a connection for why it's allowed to be the way it is. Uh, just to kind of dissect that a little bit. Yeah. You say people have, they see infinities and they're like, that shouldn't be there. Right. So uh -huh. that, that, that means, you know, the answer before you're sort of proceeding. Right. Yes. That's, that seems kind of strange to me because then how do you use it to predict something? Right. Is it, does it have to be, within the realm of comfort, right? Because what if, what if you come to a situation where you get an infinity and you didn't know that that was or wasn't supposed to be an infinity, right? What do you, what do, you do there? So, okay, th this, is, this is a great point. Uh, so the way that, what, one of the things that made me a little bit more comfortable with quantum field theory is this, this thought experiment that I was introduced to um, so the, where I first saw it was um, a quantum field theory book by a guy named Sidney Coleman. Hmm. And uh, so this, this guy is known as, um, I think, the, the orator or the prophet of uh, Princeton. And the, so, the orator or prophet of Princeton? Yes. I don't know what that means. I don't know why that has significance, but it sounds fun. <laughs> yes. No, no. Th like th it's meant to mean that this guy is very good at explaining things. Hmm. And so, so the thought experiment that he wrote about in his book, and I don't think it was due to him. I think it was due to some earlier physicist, but he, he wrote about the story. This is where I first saw it. Is, well, so we know from basic quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle. Okay. Okay. So that is to say, if I know the precise position of something, I won't know its velocity very well. I can't know it very well. Or if I know its velocity very well, I can't know its exact position very well. Mm -hmm. And so th this is pretty well accepted from, from quantum mechanics. Uh, so, but then it becomes this philosoph philosophical question of saying, okay, let, let me say I have a particle in a tube and I make that tube smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, I know by the uncertainty principle that as I know that the position of this thing more and more precise, I won't be able to know its velocity as precise. Hmm. And, but there should come a point where I don't know its velocity well enough that it could exceed the speed of light. Let, let me stop you there because I, I have to think about that for a moment. Sure. 
So you've, you've condensed this tube smaller and smaller. Presumably, you know, you're, you're limiting the position, right? That's what you're doing by making it smaller and smaller. Yes. So there's a point you said at which you don't know the velocity. I, I would know, I would be able to speculate a range of velocities to this. And the range that you can speculate gets bigger and bigger as you get smaller and smaller. Yes. Tube. Okay, so proceed. Yes. So as I, as I make this tube smaller and smaller, uh, I am forced to say that the velocities will have to become larger and larger hmm. that I'm dealing with. Eventually, it will have to reach a point where this exceeds the speed of light. Fascinating. And That's... so, right, this is, this is where the intersection of saying relativity and quantum mechanics comes into play, is that you have to say there has to be a workaround to this. Hmm. And so if I, were, if I were just to ask you, Mo, what you think the workaround is, do you have any ideas to what that might be? Interesting. So the thing that my mind goes to is that there is no way to make the tube infinitely small. Right, so you, 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 you like physically lose the, the, the quote, the space in which this thing can reside, right? There must be a definitive point at which you say, okay, here's the limit, uh, let's proceed, <laughs> right? We just, have to, we just have, to, we have to take it and move forward. And I hopefully see. that coincides with the range being within the realm of like causality. I see. So that, that's, a, that's an incredibly good guess. Um, I can tell you that, or, or let me say that assume, and I believe that this is also physically true, that we can still achieve those, those levels of preciseness. So, uh, sorry, I, I don't know what you mean by that. Assume that-, that I... we, we can make this tube physically small enough that this does become a problem. Oh, okay, yeah, we can, we can actually do this in experiment. Yeah. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I thought this was just this thought experiment. Well, well it, so, okay, it is a thought experiment, but you know, barring all technicalities of saying, um, uh, cause you know, we would also have to measure this, uh, mm -hmm. and be able to, uh, right. Measure the velocities of this thing. And I think to some extent we are able to actually physically measure this, mm. but for all intents and purposes, right. Ignoring the si the, the, the cost of the experiment, right. Ignoring the, the, uh, technical thing. Let me just say that physically, we should be able to say that this is possible. Um, okay. That we could, if we, you know, wanted to devote enough resources, we could do this experiment. Right, right. Okay. Um, so it, it turns out that there is, there is a different workaround to this. Okay. And that is that you are forced to say that the thing that you thought was a single particle ends up not being a single particle anymore. Okay. It ends up branching off into many particles. And so you've, you've, you've created a workaround to this, um, uh, to this uncertainty principle that you were concerned with to be at the start. Because right? you the uncertainty, Pardon? Uh, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm grinding. Go ahead. Okay, okay. So the uncertainty principle, right, to refresh your memory says that I know the position of one particle very well, and I can't know its velocity very well, or it, it eventually expands. But by doing this workaround, you're saying that I've compressed this, or I've given so much energy into this particle by compressing it, that it now breaks off into two or more particles. It becomes a multi-particle system. 
And so now the, the notion of saying, well, what is the velocity of one particle is no longer re relevant because we have many particles now. Mm. And if you were to now say, okay, let me do the same, you know, crank it, now focus on one of those particles and crank it down, it branches off into many more. And you, right, so you can continue to do this, but you're never going to reach a point, or so the quantum field theory will tell you, where this will ever become a problem. Right, and this is very fascinating because it has to do with incompressibility in some sense. In right? some sense, right. Like you, you just, like you I mean, not, not precisely, but you, you have like, I'd imagine you take this little volume around each one of these dots uh -huh. and you're saying it must branch because you've put in so much energy. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. So, and you're saying that never becomes an issue. It never becomes a problem. Right. That, that is what quantum field theory will tell us. That it, 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 will, it will arrange its multi-particle branching in such a way that it can't be a problem. Fascinating. Right. And so, so, so to, to go back on, on what you're saying here, Mo, that, you know, at, at what level does, um, you know, do you say that, well, this is the way it has to be because we demand it to be so that we, we sort of know the answer ahead of time. Is this, this is sort of one of those examples is we know that quantum mechanics has to work. Yeah. And so the uncertainty principle has to work. We know that relativity has to work. And so you can't have information uh, being transferred faster than light. Mm. And so you demand that both these, you know, these principles to be true. The intersection of these two has to be consistent. And so that's what this quantum field theory is telling us that we know two separate principles to be true and how we combine them also has to remain kosher between these two. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, you sort of, you sort of have to say that, well, I demand that whatever this new theory is telling me, this quantum field theory, uh, it shouldn't, you know, give me an inconsistent answer. It yeah. shouldn't give me an infinity where it shouldn't. Mm. Uh, and that, that's sort of what, what uh, this is referring to, right? So, so still, there, there's this issue of, of predictive power, right? You've, you've given me, so I just imagine, like, imagine two parts of a circle, right? This yeah. left hand, this left, left part of the set, uh, circle is the, the machinery that allows you to definitively say all these things that we wanted to be preserved were preserved. This right hand part of the circle is brand new and it's not, it doesn't have to be compatible with anything else, but it has this predictive capacity. How seriously do we take the predictive capacity of this right hand side? Because presumably you're getting a lot of machinery and you're applying it to situations where we don't know things. For example, I mean, actually I don't know if that's applicable to your problem, but right, like there's this, there's this extra power that you've gained and there's these extra predictions that you can make. So, right. and I think the, the, just to, we don't have to like dwell on this too much, but yeah. I believe there was probably a certain thing, uh, like a certain similar argument when quantum mechanics was coming about where you're just like, Mm, this is super weird. Like, okay, it, it, it will recreate these certain physical things we know, but it has this weird predictive power. When do we have enough data to where we're comfortable with this as a model for what's happening, right? There, there's like some arbitrary threshold. I'm sure it's the same way with, with this new, with, I don't know how new it is, but this like this addition that you guys have made. Right. 
Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, so, I, so this is, I mean, right, so you're following the progression historically of why, why people, um, right, were a bit hesitant to, to accept it at first. Yeah. But, right, at the, at the end of the day, ultimately, as long as it's, this thing has predictive power that we can, in all definiteness, be able to measure something and say, does this align with the predictions of something that quantum mechanics can't predict, something that relativity can't predict, but that uh, quantum field theory can predict, mm. right? If you're able to make a prediction off of this new theory of something that um, you, know, you couldn't have made a prediction of before, and this ends up being true, I mean, that's a pretty good sign. Maybe it's a fluke, yeah. okay? But then do it again for another system if that's true, you, you right now, it's more than just a coincidence. Yeah. You, build you might power. have some actual power here. Hmm. And I, I should say, it's not that, you know, so take like uh, something, the, the discovery of the Higgs boson, for example, right? Before it was discovered, you had different physicists predicting different values of its mass. Hmm. And it wasn't that, you know, quantum field theory itself was um, predicting these, these uh, or it was inconsistent in saying, oh, we, you know, quantum field theory doesn't know which of these it is. It is that quantum field theory is a tool with which they use to predict these, right? You're worried about uh, what level of approximation is actually valid, but the tool that you're using to make that is still quantum field theory. Mm. Right, quantum field theory predicted each one of those and you couldn't have done it without quantum field theory. I see. But at the end of the day, this quantum field theory is what allowed you to make this prediction and still gave you an answer that uh, ended up being physically consistent with the experimental data. Wow. So yeah, I mean, as right. So if you view quantum, uh, quantum field theory as a tool, it's very well verified that the mechanics behind it gives accurate answers. Right. Uh, and so in that regard, I'm not at all worried that what I've predicted, um, right, might be some, right, some mathematical nonsense. No, I no, I think that it, it is a model that gives very accurate predictions. It's just a matter of how you use it uh, that will tell you whether you've made a precise prediction or not. Got it. And so we were, we were speaking about this in the context of your development into in getting to the point where you're using these things in brand new situations. But the evolution of, of you going from, from early days of physicist to, to where you are now. So yeah. I'd say continue. I'm still, I'm still very fascinated. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean... You know, a lot, a lot of these concepts of, uh, you know, I, as I, right, I gave the example of quantum field theory. Uh, but even, even I think when you first learn quantum mechanics or you first learn even, even relativity, right? Perhaps even to some degree, something as basic as say, um, maybe Newton's laws or uh, electromagnetism mm. is, right? There should be some amount of, of skepticism skepticism in, in how you're viewing this material, mm. right? Like, you know, when you first hear, hear the phrase, 
nothing can travel faster than light. Uh, you should think, well, why is that? And is there any possible way I can break this relation? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, everyone's always tempted to think that. I think we all do when you first hear these phrases. Yeah, it's like, no, it can't be. Right. There has to be some workaround. And, you know, whoever discovers this workaround is going to be the, the next Einstein, the next uh, Leibniz, the next uh, Dirac, right? Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that, um, all right, there's a certain point in which the, these theories build on to each other. There's also a certain point where there's some concepts that you find out are more or less uh, assumptions that the experimental data will tell you that, well, this seems to be true that, you know, the speed of light is constant. Mm. Uh, it seems to be true that the, um, the conservation of charge is, is true. And so it's this interesting uh, dichotomy between saying, well, you do have to make some assumptions at the end of the day. And potentially whatever those assumptions are will have a pretty catastrophic consequence on what, uh, what theories you're allowed to develop. Hmm. But at the end of the day, the, these are assumptions. Right. right? These are things that you, you can't right? You, you can't verify. Uh, but that seem to match our physical understanding of what's going on. Right? There's no mathematical reason that you can point to, but seemingly the universe behaves this way. Yeah. And I mean, it's an interesting, right? It's an interesting viewpoint that this is something you have to accept. Uh, because potentially if we're able to lift up one other layer beyond that and, you know, kind of see beyond the curtain, right. That can open up an entire new world of, of understanding. So, so let me, let me, one thing that I've been curious about, and you, you probably know this in the study of, of relativity is causality taken as an axiom or is it something that is derived and then interpreted? So I am of the understanding that cause, causality is an axiom. Hmm. That's because we are not able to observe anything that breaks causality. This is something we should hold on to and not let go of. Hmm. And I mean, I, I don't know. So depending on who you talk talk to, some people might say that, well, you know, depending on how, how far you, di you dive into information theory and how willing you are to say that information has a physical implication on our universe or how willing you are to say the physical universe has an implication on information. Uh, I mean, some people will say that, well, Right, this, this preservation of, of how we look at information, right, this causality um, should be as, as definite as, say, the conservation of momentum, as a conservation of charge. Uh, right? Something that's so well ingrained that you, you, can't, you can't change something like this. But at the end of the day, I, I see it as just being an axiom. Yeah. There, there's no like. Um... 
it's interesting because there 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 are laws that you can get that are are sort of dictated by the equation yeah. but then there are the laws that allow for the equation to exist <laughs> yes so, so there's like very fascinating fascinating i guess philosophy there right and i i mean it's interesting because there are physicists out there that are willing to not take uh the uh causality as an axiom and so you have them proposing things or they, they look at stuff and say, well, okay, if you, if you remove this axiom, what is a physical consequence? And you get stuff like uh, they'll introduce these things called tachyons, right? Which are particles that are allowed to move faster than light. Mm. And you, you potentially have regions in relativity where you say, if you're able to move fast enough, you could have the thing that, um, Right, you can have the uh, cause precede the thing that allows it to happen. Yes, and right. So, so there's physicists out there that say, "Yeah, that's totally fine. Let that happen." But the fact of the matter is, we've never observed tachyons. We've never observed any prediction that lets us uh, remove this axiom. Hmm. So, I guess. Uh... At, at the current stage in your development, right, as, as, as a, a physicist, what do, you, what do you make of those kinds of approaches? Do you, is it just something that's like, oh, passive, passive fun reading, I'll, I'll think about it maybe when I have some free time? Or is it, you know what, I, I'm really, I'm very skeptical, right? Like, I feel like one of the things to do to, to be like a good scientist is you have to maintain healthy skepticism. So do you, do you find yourself, you know, just maybe at a bar or something wondering, you know, what is, what is it like, you know, you know, I guess I don't know how to formulate this super well, but you know, is there something that you just think about where you're just like, I don't, I don't know that I want to accept that. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll, you know, in the future, I'll come back to this. Like, do you have a, like a list of those things? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty cool point to bring up. Um, so I, in my own uh, philosophical outlook towards physics and uh, science in general, is that I, I'm a bit of a, a practicalist hmm. when it comes down to it. And I can say that like, okay, sure. Maybe I won't, or maybe I don't take the axiom of... Um, uh, say causality to be true, or maybe, um, right. Maybe I'll, I might say something like, I, I don't accept the conservation of charge or something like this to be true, right. Something that that's rather fundamental to what we're able to observe. But at the end of the day, right. All of the experimental data either doesn't care about this or seems to agree with this, this particular assumption. I see. And if you want to be a, a, you know, have your name put, be accepted within the physics community, uh, then it's more practical to accept this than not. Yeah. Right? If you want to actually make progress in physics, that, that should be the way to do it. Uh, however, that being the case, I, it's not like I don't contemplate, well, what if you remove this assumption? Yeah, it's like it's just that it's not very practical to do that, and so I don't do it very often. I see. 
I, I totally get where you're coming from. It makes yeah. total sense. And I think it's probably uh, an interesting statistic to figure out how far along in the physics career are the people who are proposing tachyons? Are they yes. sort of at the tail end where they're just playing, right? And that's, that's what I get about, that's what I get about academia that I absolutely just adore is regardless of everything that you're doing, like uh-huh. you, there's, there's practicality, sure. There's, there's like genuine quest, but you're, you're playing, right? Yeah. There's, there are very few, very few career, career paths where you can, for the rest of your life, absolutely just play. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, academia is, is different uh, than, you know, a lot of careers which are, are driven, you know, by a, a will to, to make a, uh, a living. Right. And I mean, don't get me wrong, in academia, you're still making a living. That's still a pretty co- a prime component here. But, you know, a lot of these physicists aren't doing it to, to get rich or to, uh, uh, you know, do, do anything like that. They're doing it because they have a genuine curiosity. Yeah. They want to know what, you know, play around with the universe and what are they able to learn from it, right? It's, it's, it's very fascinating to see that uh, this, is, this is the atmosphere in which they surround themselves. Yeah. Uh, it, it's wonderful. I think it's truly, it's truly wonderful. Uh, do you, 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 you have, there's the one thing that I, I always like to think about is you have a vision for yourself when you're at, at each stage of your life, at each, at each even age of your life. So are you doing the things now that you, you thought you would be, you would be doing as, as a college student of maybe a freshman uh, freshman in college, uh, freshman in high school. And here, here's, a, here's another question, a three-parter. What do you think you're going to be doing when you say, get your first like faculty position or whatever you choose to do, right? What do you, what do you see yourself being truly fascinated and intrigued by? That, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, to answer your question, I did not at all think I was going to be doing this as a, a freshman. Um, so when I started out as a freshman, I was just an astronomy major and nothing else. Oh, okay. And yeah, so I, I thought I was going to be doing astronomy, uh, astrophysics to be uh, exact. But, you know, so then I, I learned more. Uh, I decided that uh, maybe uh, astrophysics and astronomy wasn't what I wanted to do. And, you know, I switched over to condensed matter physics. Uh, but even, even in regard to like my vision of what a, a physicist does, I was even misled there. What did you think during the time? So, I mean, like, so in high school, we're taught this, the scientific method. Yeah. Right. But that's not the way actual science is done. Right. You don't have one person formulating a hypothesis, right. Testing that hypothesis making some conclusion and then revising and going as needed. It's more of a team effort now. Yeah. Right. And it's broken up. You have the, the, the theorists who come up with, you know, here's the theory behind this. And you have the experimentalists who say, let's test this. And it's not the same operation with what we're told, you know, going from high school to college. Uh, it's also, you know, you, you have this kind of, 
right? Particularly the paradigm of computers. That, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. Uh, the, the introduction of computers ha has changed how we do science. And beforehand, you know, I, ha I had this vision of probably what a lot of people think physicists do, this pen and paper drawing on the chalkboard, you know, slaving away at a, a lab all day yeah. type of viewpoint. But in reality, a lot of it, um, for professors in particular, for faculty, a lot of it is teaching for one. But uh, another good part of it is they're at the computer, right? Programming some code, looking towards Python or Mathematica or MATLAB or what have you. And right, kind of coming up with uh, computational models to pick up where maybe the mathematics needs to bridge between the experiment and the actual theory. Hmm. And I, we're, we're at a point where uh, there's a lot of mathematical framework that still needs to be investigated, but that can't be investigated in a analytical manner. I see. And so this is, this is where the, the computer programs, the MATLABs, the Pythons take over, is you, you still inherently, right, at some point, you still have this analytical mathematical expression. But if you want to go further with it, you have to have a numerical way to do this. And Right, so that's another thing that I hadn't contemplated as, as a budding um, uh, physicist is how important this, this new uh, sort of, yeah, this new paradigm of physics where you're, you are using computers uh, and particularly now you are using um, machine learning to do things. Mm. Uh, so that, that was another thing that I, I hadn't really contemplated. So are you, are you actively involved in th this part of the work as well? So you're, yes. you're writing, you're writing code, you're doing machine learning, you're doing the whole, the whole thing. Yes. What, what, do, what do you, what do you think? How do you, how do you like it? I, I mean, I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah. So it's something I, I wasn't expecting, but that's just partly because I wasn't exposed to it. Yeah. But have, having worked with these computers, uh, having written this code, I mean, it's very satisfying when you have enough of an understanding of, of some uh, theory or some principle to be able to say, you know, let me, let me write this code, make a prediction. And, you know, maybe I'm able to take a certain parameter of it and say, well, if I make this parameter zero or I, I make it a, a certain value, I should get an analytic expression. And to see that it matches up with the analytic expression is very satisfying. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's something that it, it's rather gratifying. If you look at physicists back in the day who didn't have this computational power, you know, it's like their theory was only relevant to certain values. And no matter what they could contemplate, they would never be able to test it within this range of values. And to some extent, you're able to view beyond what they're seeing, right? To uh, tie into what we said at the beginning, stand on the shoulders of giants. You, their theories have propelled you up and now you're able to see farther than they have because you have this computational framework. Yeah. And so it is very gratifying to, to see like, well, 
you know, I've no, I know never, no one has ever used this set of parameters and seen this far into the equation before as I have. And it's pretty powerful to think about, I think. Yeah, certainly. There, there are patterns. So, so you're talking about precision as well. There's precision that is unrivaled, right? We can go to however many decimal points and verify right? that, that there's a beauty in that. And then the, the beauty, I think, with the, uh, the, the sort of modern statistical methods is that you can, you can find patterns in data that we've already had, like we, we, have, we have, right, that we didn't know of before. <laughs> yeah. Right, that it's that kind of regularity that that's just so just wow. There's like another level. You were talking about orders of corrections, right? Perhaps there's that deeper level of, of analysis that has yet to be done. Yeah. It's so always. One, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's it's always interesting seeing um. You know the these different uh, paradigms. Of physics and seeing what was actually relevant to the people studying it at the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, no, I agree. I agree. What do you think the big shift, uh, if there is another one, throughout your your like career in physics will be? Right. You're saying there's this new. I don't know how new it is, but there's this like new outlook that we can have because of computers. We can have. We can start using machine learning. We can start having this extra precision. Do you, do you foresee a similar? thing happening in the future or is it just going to be more and more that you know people physicists who are physicists who are coming in are going to come in with this literacy and we're going to sort of just like take with it take it and run yeah so uh, yeah i'm gonna say that i think quantum information uh is going to be the big field in two parts okay right so for one is that it is exploding in popularity right now there is a massive push by, uh, by industry, by academia, by various governments to focus on this quantum information, okay. right? They, they, want, they want to be able to build these, these powerful computers that are unrivaled, that take advantage of quantum mechanical properties to give this unrivaled computation. And so I think in terms of say just careers, uh, that's even right now, that's a major shift. And it's only going to be even major-er uh, in the future. But to, to the other end of the question uh, is that I think once we do have a stable uh, quantum computational foundation to work with, that's going to be the next major era in physics. We're, you know, I, I mentioned that with these current classical computers, even now we're able to compute things that you know, our, our physicist forefather, forefathers would have never even be able to dreamed of computing. Mm. And so in that regard, I think once we have access to these quantum computers, those physicists are going to be able to compute things that I'm not able to even dream of. Yeah. And I think that's a, a pretty powerful, frankly, a pretty scary proposition. Um, but I look forward to it. Yeah, I do look forward to it and seeing what they're able to do. So what, what compels you? What compels you to... To, to do this? Is it just genuine curiosity about how, how, how it all works? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it's genuine curiosity. Uh, it's this, this proposition. I, I don't know. I think we all have this in ourselves in a little bit in some regard or another. But it, it's the, the feeling you get when you discover something that no one else has discovered before. 
this fact that you're able to claim that I, I've seen something that no one else has seen. Yeah. And I mean, you know, even back in the day, even before physics was popular, right? You have, you have people like, um, you know, the, uh, say Columbus or say Magellan, these, these explorers who were driven by this, this proposition to see something that no one else has seen, to explore something that no one else has explored, right? It's sort of this, this, uh, right, this enterprising um, mentality that I, I think dwells within all of us in some way or another, right? Even, even people who aren't in STEM, right? Say, um, maybe, maybe your goal in life is to just be a, a good parent, for example. I think in that regard, that, that is sort of an enterprising mentality to say that maybe I want to raise my kid in a way that no one else has raised their kid before. Hmm. Right. It, it, I, you know, I, I think it is within all of us. And I think this is just one manifestation of it. Yeah. Right. Just to say that this is a calculation that no one else has seen before. And I think in that regard, it, it's, it's something that is special, something that should be uh, held on to. Yeah. It's your special part of our sort of infinite world. Right. Yes. It is your, it is, your it's like you, you've you've seen it you've, you've built it there's just something really really powerful there so then what uh here's something that's quite fascinating and, and on this note what, what would you say to your fresh freshman year college self knowing what you know now if you had five like a not even five minute like a one minute conversation you had only one minute to go tell, tell that person something, you know, what would you say? It's a, it's a weird proposition because you could say a lot of things. It could be related to even your family or your, your interests, but. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty fascinating question. I think I, I, I tell my freshman self um, to be open to change more. Uh, I think my freshman self was a little bit too rigid in what he wanted to do and uh, in what his expectations in physics and just, I, I guess, the general world were. Hmm. Um, right. I mean, I, I could, I, I probably should have made the switch to condensed matter earlier than I did, but I was, I was a stubborn individual and I, I thought that, you know, I, I'd like to stick it out a little bit more and, um, you know, try, try my hand. First it was, uh, right. I mentioned astronomy, uh, for a very brief period, I, I worked in high energy, um, and decided I didn't like that either. Yeah. And so I, I think I, I should have been a little bit more open to just switching around at an earlier stage. Yeah. And so I think that that's what I probably would have told my freshman self. Yeah. And you, you carry that with yourself today. This, this openness. Yeah, I try to, I try to. And then I, there was one, there was one question which I believe got, I'm, I'm asking like four part questions and expectation, right? Uh, yeah. where, where do you see yourself headed? Yeah, so it, it's, it's interesting um, because I, I did mention this, um, this quantum information, this quantum computation aspect of things. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to become more and more accepted that condensed matter physicists like myself, uh, high energy physicists even, 
are starting to be, get recruited into this, uh, right, this push towards quantum computation. Hmm. And so at this point in time, I think I'd like to remain in just strictly uh, condensed matter. However, there is, there is indeed uh, a fair possibility that uh, I will find myself in the future contemplating these uh, quantum computation aspects of things. Wow. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. Uh, but at this point, right, I would like to remain in faculty. Um, I would like to continue being a researcher and uh, making these discoveries that I think are uh, fascinating and important. Um, but it might be a, a slight switch in tone and maybe uh, uh, computation instead. Yeah. But we'll see. 